Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, episode 27, Hellenistic Women, part one, daily life and roles. If you were to take any random person off the street, whether they knew a great amount or very little about history, and presented them with either a list of names or images that directly relate to the Hellenistic Age or ancient history in general, I almost guarantee that while most people would certainly know about Alexander the Great, thanks to the power of Shakespeare and popular culture, everyone would immediately recognize the name of Cleopatra VII of Ptolemaic Egypt. One of the great changes in the Hellenistic period is that women, primarily from the upper class, began to take positions closer under the historical lens of authors of the ancient world. Queens such as Cleopatra VII, Olympias of Epirus, Arsinoe II, Cleopatra Thea, and so on and so forth, became more actively involved in the political life of the period, rather than taking a backseat as was the case in classical Greece. In addition, the more cosmopolitan and urbanized Hellenistic world gives rise to a greater volume of evidence that allows us to better piece together the daily lives of women across these territories, and the various changes and similarities that occurred throughout the period. What I wanted to do was to take a two-episode journey, the first to be focusing on what life was like for your typical woman in a Hellenistic society, and the second part to focus on women of power. This means I will have to do a number of generalizations, given the scale of what I have to work with, but I am going to be focusing on the realms of Antigone and Macedon and Greece, Ptolemaic Egypt and Alexandria, Asia Minor and the Seleucids. Following this, I will cover the various ways the roles of women expanded throughout the period, whether in regards to political, social, or economic autonomy and more. So, without further ado, let us begin part one. But before we can start properly, I think it is important that we look at our sources, since it is a little different from traditional scholarship regarding things like political or military history. Typically, authors from the ancient world tended to focus upon the upper or ruling classes of society, kings and queens, commanders, consuls, whatever. And in particular, things such as warfare tended to be the main interest of historians at the time. This leads to a bit of a problem when it comes to trying to piece together the nature of the role of women. Whether it's a Greek, Hellenistic, or Roman society, we tend not to notice women as much since the realm of politics and warfare were almost exclusively dominated by men, and our sources reflect that. In addition, when women were discussed by our writers, it must be taken with a grain of salt regarding the veracity of their statements. This is true for any historical account, but when your society and culture is self-described as being extremely masculine or patriarchal and written from a male perspective, the writings must be scrutinized under the presumption that either the author in question is probably going to be biased, or that elements of more misogynistic tendencies, whether malicious or not, are going to bleed through. In the 1970s, the historian Sarah B. Pomeroy re-examined the way we investigate women in the classical world in her landmark work, Goddesses, Whores, Wives, and Slaves, followed up by her 1984 volume, Women in Hellenistic Egypt. Professor Pomeroy argued that instead of focusing upon the literature of the period, evidence must be pulled from more unorthodox places. For instance, epigraphy, 
which is the study of inscriptions from places like public monuments, graves, dedications, etc. The Hellenistic period in particular is subject to an enormous body of inscriptions that gives us more detail about the ways women were involved in public affairs. Archaeological evidence excavated from the remains of ancient households can give us more insight regarding their personal spaces and objects which comprise their private life, in conjunction with artistic representations, whether upon vases or images carved upon gravestones. But some of our most valuable evidence remains papyrus fragments, essentially the paper of the era. While bits and pieces have been collected everywhere across the Roman and Hellenistic world, our greatest hotspot for recovering fragments is Egypt, given that the climate is much more conducive in preventing rot or the passage of time from completely eating away at the documents, hence why the women of Ptolemaic Egypt are so well documented. These papyrus fragments often were parts of personal letters, from mothers to children, women to friends, personal prayers and magical incantations, or letters of transaction regarding business. In 2001, Dutch archaeologists reportedly confirmed that a piece of papyrus was part of a royal letter written by a Ptolemaic scribe to a Roman companion of Mark Antony, and that the very bottom of gibberish regarding tax exemptions is the unique signature Guinness Thoi, Greek for make it so, believed to have been the personal handwriting of Cleopatra VII, one of the few surviving handwritten signatures from rulers in antiquity. I mean, if there was any word of Cleopatra's to survive the ages, it might as well have been something so imperious. But I'm getting ahead of myself. From this point on in an episode, I will often be repeating based on this inscription or evidence from this fragment suggest, so you'll have to forgive me as a preemptive warning. So now let us begin. As all of life does, let us start with the miracle of birth. No, I'm not going to give you all a talk about the birds and the bees, but if there were ever an event as deeply personal to ancient women, it would be the processes of labor. One unifying feature in women's history is that before the advent of modern medical technology and practices, giving birth could be an extremely treacherous affair. Infection, blood loss, breech births, all could be complications that could easily threaten the life of both the infant and the mother. There is the famous line by the Athenian playwright Euripides of the 5th century, where the female protagonist Medea claims that she would rather step in rank of a hoplite battle line three times before giving birth once. This must be taken with a grain of salt, since it comes from the mouth of a villainess, if a sympathetic one. But there is a large degree of truth to this claim. It is estimated based upon studies of grave sites and remains dating to the period, that women in antiquity faced about a 14% mortality rate during childbirth. And coupled with the fact that a family had to produce enough children to ensure that at least one survives the tolls of childhood diseases and injuries to pass on the family name, this must have been a relatively common sight. These women who died in childbirth have been shown to be honored as essentially heroic figures, depicted on surviving graves dating from the 3rd and 4th centuries BC with motifs that suggest reverence for their sacrifices. A tragic epitaph from the 3rd century is dedicated as follows, quote, Here is Timoclea, here is Philo, here is Aristo, here is Timaitho, 
the daughters of Aristodicus, all killed in childbirth. Their father died after he set up this monument to them. End quote. The event itself is spoken of very quietly in our sources. Men were traditionally not present or not allowed at the birth, and the expectant mother would be attended exclusively by female slaves, and an important figure known as the Maya, or midwife. Since written material about the processes of birth are often unavailable or rare at the time, midwives were extremely important in the transmission of knowledge to new mothers and helping assist in the safe delivery of the infant. In some writers' opinions, they were known as the first teachers of the children, since they were the ones to handle the baby first. These midwives were often treated, at least in the Greek-speaking world, with a very high degree of respect, akin to medical professionals, and were comprised largely of somewhat literate free or non-slave women. With the observation and the help of the midwife, the baby is delivered and the mother is safe. It turns out that the child is a girl. Unfortunately, in Hellenistic societies, males were often the more desired sex, because they legally could inherit property and carry on the family name, and it is also theorized that poorer households could only afford so many marriage dowries with the prospect of more daughters, but more on that later. Records of censuses taken from the city of Miletus in 220s BC indicate a highly skewed ratio of infant males to infant females. The grim conclusion is that many girls must have been left exposed to the elements to die, or to be picked up and sold into the slave markets. And it was the father who made this decision. A papyrus fragment of a letter between an Alexandrian husband and his wife reads as follows, quote, I beg and beseech of you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. If, good luck to you, you bear offspring, if it is a male, let it live. If it is a female, expose it. End quote. In our theoretical case, the father was greatly pleased at the presence of a new baby daughter. One of the earliest female-to-female -female bonds to be formed between the new infant girl would be with her wet nurse, alternatively known in Greek as the trophos or tythine. The wet nurse, in case you were wondering, was the one to breastfeed the newborn, and such a position would be held by a slave or a lower-class servant or lower-class member of society. Now, a wet nurse was not always required, but, especially in Roman society, for a mother to directly breastfeed her baby was considered an act of extraordinary virtue, and it must be suggested that it was unusual to do so. These wet nurses were not seen as mere food repositories, but were often beloved members of the household, forming powerful lifelong bonds with the children that they helped raise. In a moment of grief and sorrow, Alexander the Great exclaimed that the worst part about his murder of Clytus the Black was the fact that Hiclytus' sister, Lanike, was his nurse, but he could not bear to have hurt her in such a manner. Interestingly, the arrangement of these wet nurses could be highly litigious and very regulated, since the ancients believed that the nurse could somehow transfer an essence of moral character through her breast milk to the suckling babe and thus were often contractually bound to specific diets and sexual abstinence in order to prevent the milk from being spoiled. Once they survived the initial toll of childhood diseases by the age of five or six, the young girl begins her education. I am saving the bulk about this particular topic for later in the episode, but suffice it to say, the vast majority of educated girls were in an urbanized environment, and were taught the rudimentary practices of reading and writing at only a basic level. 
girls in rural areas would often more likely begin to help their mothers in the management of the household, with chores such as cooking, weaving, or looking after younger children. Upon reaching the age of 12 to 14 years, the average girl begins to undergo menarche, or their first menstrual cycle. At this stage, this now makes them suitable candidates for marriage. Now, this does not mean that they were viewed as mature women. That would only come when they would bear children, and some philosophers and doctors of the time expressed great concern at the thought of an immature uterus trying to cope with pregnancy. In Hellenistic cultures, this rule was generally followed, but there are indications of mothers at the age of 12 or 13 based upon surviving inscriptions. In classical era Greece, the affair of marriage was wholly and entirely in the hands of men, generally their fathers or brothers who would oversee the matchmaking process, though almost assuredly mothers and female relatives would play a role by keeping on the lookout for suitable bachelors, men who were usually in their late 20s or early 30s. A suitable dowry was given on behalf of the bride's family, something that fathers of multiple daughters dreaded dearly, as it was the daughter's share of property of her parents, and you could imagine it can get very expensive very quickly. As the Hellenistic age progressed, one of the profound changes of women's rights was their status in marriages. The cosmopolitan nature of the Hellenistic world had disturbed the order of the day. Since migration and travel were more common, this drastically affected the nature of these contracts. Dowries were often comprised of movable goods, such as clothing, jewelry, or cold hard cash, rather than pieces of property or land. In addition, due to the limited selection of Greek or Macedonian brides in the more distant territories of the Hellenistic kingdoms outside the larger cities, men could be forced to take contracts that were more favorable to women by virtue of supply and demand. These marriage contracts allowed for the equal capability to divorce, should either party fail to keep up their end of the bargain. In the case of men, they would be seen as the providers for their wives, but had the license to engage in only minor extramarital affairs. Women were not allowed to have these extramarital activities, but could demand repayment if they felt that their honor and status of their role as the household master was being violated or they were not being properly taken care of. As early as Alexander's campaigns, the marriage between Macedonians and non-Macedonians, Greeks and non-Greeks, were becoming far more common in both the literary and epigraphical sources. Soldiers, mercenaries, and traders who had settled across the Near East and former Persian Empire would often turn to the local women who lived in the regions that they now occupied. From our evidence, this seems to be skewed to one direction. In Egypt, the ratio of Greek or Macedonian men marrying native Egyptian women is far higher than Greek or Macedonian women marrying native Egyptian men. This is usually due to the fact that there would be far more Greek and Macedonian men than there were Greek or Macedonian women. So, the options within their ethnic or cultural groups were limited. And in some instances, Ptolemaic rulers actually rewarded their landed soldiers who married native Egyptian women with tax breaks. Unfortunately, well for the Greek men anyways, Egyptian society had allowed for a far greater set of legal rights for women than respective Greek or Macedonians, and their contracts could be notoriously detailed, breaking down every single piece of property that belonged to the women and allowed them far greater freedom of movement. Despite the more pragmatic nature that many of these marriages seem to embody, this does not mean that passion was not a part of the process. 
There are graves that have touching epitaphs from husband and wife, such as the following from a first-century grave in Asia Minor. Quote, For you I built the stone dwelling of a tomb, Athos. I, Theos, twice your age. On the verge of old age, I hope to receive the dust from your hands. Undiscriminating God, who has quenched the sun for both of us. At this you lived for me, and in me left your last breath, what was once a reason for joy, but now for tears. Myself, by necessity, take pleasure in drawing breath for our young child. I shall bear this for your sake, and with my wretched eyes look upon the harsh sun. End quote. But the relationship of the adult women was not strictly limited to husband and wife. Writings about female friendships survive in both the poetic and the day-to-day. The lady poet Erina, in a surviving fragment of one of her great works, has a female speaker mourn of a lost friendship between her and a childhood girlfriend, separated at first by their respective marriages, then her death. Euthyla of Athens placed a tablet containing an epitaph to mourn her friend Beote, and many more examples throughout antiquity demonstrate the close-knittedness of womenfolk, especially in times of very personal events, such as childbirth or death. It wasn't always friendly, however, as there are plenty of cursed tablets that survive, dedicated by vengeful women upon others, calling upon all sorts of calamities to befall their hated rivals in both private and public affairs. I also spoke earlier about the presence of the wet nurse as a key early relationship that a young girl could make and remain tied to most of her life, but I do not mean to imply that a mother and her daughter could not have a strong bond. Later in their lives, many daughters could retreat back to their mother's households after a messy divorce, and often some form of dowry would be passed as a gift from the mother to the daughter, often some luxurious family clothes passed through the mother's household for generations. In the next episode, I will talk more about the relationship between Macedonian and Hellenistic queens and their sons. But suffice it to say, there were plenty of examples of close mother-son relationships in the lower classes as there were among the royalty. It also must be mentioned that almost every mother would face tragedy repeatedly via the loss of her children, thanks to perilous infant mortality rates due to the ravages of disease and relatively poor understanding of medicine. It is suggested that 20% of children would die before they turned 5 years old, and this trend seems to be true for many centuries afterwards. A bit beyond the period I'm discussing about, the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius and his wife Faustina would have at least 13 children together, with the best medical access in the entire Roman Empire, but only 5 would outlive their father. As she transferred from mother to matron to older age, a woman would remain close to her family, acting as a source of support and wisdom to her surviving children and grandchildren, along with the management of the household and their staff. Eventually, like all, she would pass on from old age or sickness and be returned to ash and dust. There were many surviving examples of gravestones dedicated to respected women of the household, depicted ranging from slaves to the matriarch of the family. In the words of Professor Pomeroy, gains in economic responsibility outstrip women's legal competency during the Hellenistic age. We see a great amount of sources during this period that showcase the many roles a woman could play in the Hellenistic economy, though admittedly it is still largely dominated by men. 
The most commonly valued form of wealth, especially in a place like Egypt, would be the possession of land, which would remain valuable in times of unstable currencies. In Sparta, the most radical of all the Hellenistic societies, women were in direct control of approximately two-fifths of all workable land. In Egypt, the transformation was more gradual, occurring over centuries of rule under the Ptolemies. Women were at first limited in land ownership, given that a rather large portion of it was reserved to settle mercenaries, known as the clericy system, whereby soldiers would permanently stay in return for a donative of land as a fallback on livelihood. These soldiers would exclusively be men, and were the only legally allowable owners of this land. Over the 2nd and 1st century BC, this began to drastically change. As men shirked their military duties and the system placed by the Ptolemies would fall apart, women would seize upon the opportunity to grab land, and it was accepted since it was better for someone to manage the fields rather than letting it fall to ruin and having it be reclaimed by nature. In general, the land distribution remained largely skewed, but evidence supports the notion that women were acquiring more land proportionally, whether it was private, royal, or religious land. At a basic level, this land would serve as an agricultural hotspot, but as far as our sources go, it seems that the main output of this was in the form of fruits, like olives or grapes. Grain was typically much more labor-intensive, and required much more capital investment in the form of slaves or pack animals, and harvesting fruit was not seen as an unwomanly task. Still, the bulk of our agricultural land ownership by women would be through the leasing of land to someone else, rather than maintaining it for their own accord. While they may have not worked in the fields as much, women were eager to sell their goods at the local market. We have a surprising amount of record from conservative Athens, where numerous women list their trade occupations upon their gravestones. Sesame seed sellers, wool workers, horse tenders, honey sellers, bakers, and more. In Egypt, there are indications of small-scale industrial operations staffed by women, where they would be spinning textiles and clothing. Many of these industrial women were likely slaves, but textiles as a trade remained largely female-dominated, regardless of their legal status. Gone were the days of women forced to spin at the loom hours at a time to produce clothing for her family, as the amount of materials available to purchase had increased thanks to the advancing economy, but at the cost of women becoming more dependent on her husband for cash to pay for it, if that were the case. Even then, many ladies could accumulate sizable amounts of wealth on their own, and some reports of even acting as moneylenders, or being able to offer donatives to artists, temples, or public works, such as the Ionian Greek Philae, who is reported as funding the construction of a water cistern and supply system at her own expense to the city of Priene in Asia Minor. Since we are discussing the Hellenist economy, I think it is important to also discuss the more somber aspects of women's roles in it. Above all else, slavery. Barring being born into it, slavery in general was a particularly unpleasant fate inflicted upon prisoners of war, captives, and abandoned infants, who were technically designated as being of a slave status unless someone could come forward and prove parentage. But since the parents of this neglected child clearly were not interested in its welfare in the first place, this is extremely unlikely. One of the fates of a female slave was them ending up in sexual slavery or forced prostitution. Typically, a female prostitute was not a glamorous position in terms of its customer base, 
who would be primarily soldiers, the poor, or other male slaves or freemen. But if the female slave was deemed sufficiently beautiful enough, they may be able to improve their status ever so slightly by being raised to the position of hetairai, or companion. Hetairai was just the polite euphemism for a courtesan, or consort, but they could serve as a sexual or romantic partner to the upper echelon of Hellenistic society. Examples of famous courtesans include Thais, the lover of Ptolemy I during the campaigns of Alexander, who freely wove herself into the drinking parties and court politics of the Macedonian monarchy. These women could be educated in song and literacy, with some records of these concerts even belonging to schools of philosophy and penning their own works. However, these hetairai could often be viewed with intense scorn, subject to the criticisms of the ancient authors as the pinpoint or examples of degeneracy that led to moral decay of a kingdom or ruler. I remind you of the example of Thais for being blamed for suggesting to Alexander to burn down the city of Persepolis in a drunken fervor. However, the likelihood of being raised to the status of a hetairai was very small, and most enslaved prostitutes were damned legally by their status, unable to marry even if they are granted freedom by their masters, never mind the abuse on the body of being such a slave. If a female slave was instead taken to be a household servant, they would be tasked with fulfilling their domestic duties. They may act as wet nurses to make sure the infant children of their masters were properly fed and taken care of, or they may serve as cooks, cleaners, and weavers, aiding the mistress of the household in her tasks. In some instances, they would be also be forced to work in agriculture, though this was relatively uncommon. Being a domestic slave was generally better than being forced into sexual servitude, but only by a reasonable margin. A male master had the power of life and death over their slaves, and since legally it was not considered infidelity if the man slept with a female slave, a sexual relationship between their masters would not be uncommon, whether consensual or taken by force. Prostitution was not only a slave trade, as many women, given the choice between starvation and selling their bodies, would prefer the latter. The Hittirai I mentioned were unusual given their proximity towards the most highly accumulated pockets of wealth in their respective regions, but most prostitutes were acting at a subsistence level, sometimes in addition to working as barmaids. More liberal professions could also include becoming an actress or playing music, but becoming an actress was not considered an audible career choice, being seen as little better than a prostitute. Musicians were more respected. As many grave markers list women's abilities to play instruments such as the lyre or harp akin to badges of honor. While the realm of economic power had expanded, the realm of education had changed as well. Despite the impression of classical Athens as being a watermark of Greek education and intellectual life, this experience was almost entirely restricted to Athenian men. Sparta, ever the unusual exception, was the one great city that provided equal opportunities during the classical period for both men and women to be educated in all forms. By the time of the Hellenistic period, the opportunities for higher education had expanded to allow for many women to be able to be trained in the arts, rhetoric, and philosophy. That is, if you could afford it. But the principle of educating both sexes has been traced back to both at least the likes of Plato and Aristotle, and several cities list donatives by the royal families or wealthy patrons to ensure that a level of universal primary education, both male and female, was to be shared among the classes. 
girls and boys would both learn how to read, write, and play music. But outside of Sparta, only the males were allowed to take part in the gymnastics or physical education. Beyond the ability to read and write, higher education was still heavily favored towards males, partially because the financial burden of seeking it was thought to be better used for sons who would be active in the political life of their region. However, inscriptions from cities of high learning like Alexandria or Pergamon suggest that girls could enter into contests to read epic poetry or elegiac works, clearly a sign that they must have had at least a familiarity with the classical writings of the time. Statues and figurines show women reading or wearing the clothes of a learned mind, and there is a flurry of letters from mothers, wives, and sisters that survive in both the Hellenistic and the Roman periods. It must be understood, though, that due to the expenses and overall lack of interest regarding giving their daughters a higher education, the ones that appear in our sources as learned were almost entirely the higher class and wealthier girls, and this freedom was not extended to the lower classes or rural populations outside of cities. However, this should not disparage the fact that a number of prestigious and learned women managed to make a presence in the period. There were scholars and grammarians like Hestia of Alexandria, who penned a study on the geography of Homer's Iliad, which was influential to later authors like Strabo, though none of her work survives. Diophila composed a study of astronomy, possibly the first Greek woman to do so. Poets such as Anite, Erina, and Gnosis composed works about friendships, the gods, and mournful epitaphs, continuing the tradition of the earlier poet Sappho. Along with this include a larger number of women interested in the various schools of philosophy, above all else the doctrines of the Pythagoreans, casually known as the biggest math nerds of the ancient world, who were very accepting women in their ranks since the time of the original founder Pythagoras in the 6th century BC. But the later so-called Neopythagoreans and Stoics stressed the more traditional restrictions on women's roles, rather than the original Pythagoreans or the Cynics, or even better, the Epicureans. The amount that I could actually join up with these schools is probably not too sizable, but it's interesting to see their curiosity in doing so. If they themselves could not write treatises of works for these schools, and it is very possible that some of them actually did, then many wealthy ladies would be acting as patrons of scholars and writers. The mother of King Antigonus Gonatus of Macedon, Queen Phila, was reputedly fascinated by the philosophers that showed up at the royal court, depicted in reliefs as watching a lecturer with great interest compared to her son. This practice of increasingly cultured women would begin to penetrate notoriously conservative Rome as well, with the first great practitioner being Cornelia Africana, the daughter of the Philhellene general Scipio Africanus, who made sure his daughter was very well learned for the standards of a Roman woman. At this time, the role of midwives began to expand conceptually in the realm of higher education as well. There is an emergence of female doctors specializing in women's health, a proto-OBGYN, if you will, who were helping pioneer the field of gynecology, and it is believed that two treatises on the topic were written by women and have survived, though the exact authorship is under debate. There is also the story of Agnodike, supposedly the first female midwife doctor of Athens, which was used extensively in later centuries to argue the legitimacy of women becoming doctors, but most scholars tend to believe that the story is just probably a folktale. But as I talked about earlier, this was a natural movement from the role of the midwife into the specialization of women's health, 
given women's reluctance to consult men in such private matters, even with the efforts of pioneers like Hippocrates to better understand them. While we have spent considerable time discussing the roles of women, their relationships, and how we should look at the unorthodox sources for a more accurate depiction, I think it is still important to also take a look at the traditional ones too. My reasoning is that these writings allow us to observe how women were perceived by non-women, largely educated males who were able to pen their thoughts down in intellectual treatises, or through the arts like plays and comedies. It is not unreasonable to suggest that women in Hellenistic society as a whole were largely seen as a lesser being than men. Aristotle, considered one of the greatest intellectual minds of all time, believed that women were both inferior in mind and in body, essentially referring to them as infertile men. And most of the classical authors, playwrights, and poets, even the rather sympathetic Euripides, were more dismissive or uninterested in exploring women beyond a very basic level. The epitome of woman, in most male Greek eyes, was one who was virtuous by way of her chastity, piety, and devotion to motherly and wifely duties. Women like Penelope, the loyal and crafty wife of Odysseus who fought off suitors for over a decade while raising her son in the hopes of Odysseus's return. This isn't to say that these attributes aren't worthy of respect, but when a woman deviated from these roles, whether fictional like the witch Medea or a real-life person like Olympias of Epirus, there was a tendency for the sources to become suspicious or outright hostile. This remained true even throughout the Hellenistic period into the Roman one, but there were a number of developments in the perception of how women were characterized and seen in the arts. A third-century poet named Herodas is the author of a number of numerous quote-unquote lowbrow mimes, essentially short verses that were unique for their depiction of lower-middle-class life, including that of women. These were generally comedic in nature, with body characters depicting some of the more raunchy aspects of daily life that is often untouched by other authors. In Mime 6, two middle-class women named Metro and Corito have a conversation about their pacifiers, a euphemism for dildos and other sexual delights. Other poets like Theocritus pen dialogues between two gossiping ladies before they head to a special event. And whether the scene is in tongue-in-cheek or a day in the life, the role of the women was treated with more complexity and nuance in Hellenistic literature than earlier Greek writers. The depiction of women in art also became more liberal in nature, emphasizing the beauty of the nude female form, which was formerly something for private collections like painted vases, rather than the dedications of public statues of nude women and the human form, such as the partially nude Venus de Milo and the completely naked Esquiline Venus. Overall, the attitude towards the sexual aspects on women had begun to soften, moving away from a strictly private affair to one more discussed in the open, with an increased appreciation for the female form and literature that gave more thought to women's amorous interests and desires. This doesn't mean that they were free to cavort around as much as men, but the romantic side of love through the throngs of passion was more pronounced than in the classical age in general. Looking at the Hellenistic period as a whole, it is relatively safe to say that life for your typical Greco-Macedonian woman had improved compared to that of her ancestors, at least in terms of political, social, or economic mobility. It would be too far to say that there was a revolution in thought and practice overnight, 
as many of these changes would occur gradually over centuries of acclimation and transformation. Indeed, most on the lower rungs of society probably never noticed that much of an improvement in their lot anyways, and society was still dominated by favoritism towards male elites. I also wish I could tell you that this could have been applied to everyone, but the complexities of a cosmopolitan Hellenistic world make it difficult for me to accurately say this. We have a number of limited sources for the Greco-Macedonian women of the period as it is, and I am barely able to comment on the women of the many other groups who lived in the territories of the Hellenistic kingdoms, Persians, Bactrians, Indians, Egyptians, Jews, etc., etc. Many of my comments have had to have been generalizations, and it is simply because we struggle to find evidence for certain regions compared to others. But I am not finished with my discussion. While we are wrapping up our time with your typical experience as a Hellenistic woman, for the next episode, we will move towards discussing the women of power, queens, empresses, and goddesses, and take a look at how the roles of the elite are changed over time. Until then, thank you all for listening and supporting the show. I apologize once again for the delay in between my discussion on Pyrrhus and this episode. It's not for a lack of interest, believe me but my complications in my professional and school life have made things very challenging to the point where being able to sit down and read for 20 minutes was a luxury. But the feedback and support from my listeners has been extremely kind and understanding. If you liked what you've heard and want to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on a number of platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. If you want to take a look at the sources I've used in addition to some helpful material relating to the episode, check out my website at hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com for the show notes. I also am active on social media, such as Twitter and Facebook, where I will post interesting articles and facts of the day and give updates regarding show production. And please, feel free to drop me a line for comments, criticism, or just to say hello at any of these accounts or through my email at hellenisticagepodcast at gmail.com. These links will all be provided in the show notes and podcast description. So, until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast.